What's good, everybody? It's your boy, Big Nate. Welcome to Big Nate Short Story Club, home of the best short story clubs. And today I'm joined with me by Ben Chalupka to talk about what is it like to be a bat by Thomas Nagel. So, Ben, how are we doing today? Pretty good, man. Thanks for having me. Yes, I know. Yes. I had to crunch the numbers, had to fit it in the schedule, um, but <laughs> but we made it work. So, all right. What's good, everybody? Um, when I have a new guest on the podcast, I like to go through and give them some opening questions, which I forgot to do with Ben. So we are back after the fact and we are gonna um we are gonna break it down so ben morning person night person you already know the answer to this morning person. i do yeah tell them what time you wake up ben uh on, well, on, the, on the average that's definitely shifted back a little bit but i still probably get up on average somewhere around six o'clock but it used to be yeah. more like five five thirty which is plain silly and what time do you go to bed do you find that your best working hours are in the morning as well do you prefer Um, do you prefer the mornings to the nights or is it like a logistical reason that you wake up so early oh i mean it's definitely that i prefer the mornings to the nights i would say my best working hours are when i get up early and i go to the climbing gym and then i go to work having already climbed for a couple hours get the blood flowing the endorphins pumping yeah no no (laughs) I, i wish i would bro i really wish i would okay coffee or tea um i mean i like both but i guess if i'd have to pick one i'd say coffee you got to alternate force choice here bro afc um (laughs) coffee okay i didn't even think it'd be a question i'm surprised tea even was like a consideration yeah i like tea quite a bit too what's your breakdown how many cups of coffee a day how many cups of tea a day on the average well so that's the thing that's why i went with coffee because it's pretty consistently two cups a day where tea there might be days where i don't drink any there might be days where i have like i don't know two cups of like green or black tea earlier in the day and maybe a cup of some sort of nighttime herbal tea yeah i got a oh some sleepy time chamomile or something yeah no that's dope i I do um my my usually i have my morning cup and then i go do some shit have breakfast do my thing walk my dog etc come back second cup and then my afternoon is i'll do tea like some lemon i like lemon ginger Nice. Um, okay, this one I think I know, but beer or wine? <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually do like wine, but I, I easily go with beer on this one. Yeah. That's funny. Like, taste-wise? Like, um, you li- like, do you prefer? Because I'm like, you know, I drink beer more, but I think I, I feel like I, I'm going to be completely 100. I feel like I like wine more. I feel like I like the taste. It gets me drunk faster. And um, so on paper, it should be wine. But yeah, my revealed preferences, as as the behavioral (laughs) economist said, they always say I like beer. So I don't know. It's definitely like nice to have a like a good glass of red wine is is pretty great. But yeah, I I think I have to go beer because I have I mean, we live in Oregon, right? So like I've explored a lot of the great the great craft brews that we have to offer here. And Mm -hmm. I've discovered a few that I really, really like. So (laughs) yeah, no, it's true. It's true. Um, Okay, paperback or hardcover? Um, it's a good question. I'd probably, I'd probably say paperback, but there is okay, something good. nice about a good hardcover. But yeah, I don't yeah, know. Paperback's funny. just, I don't know. It's more versatile. I feel like people. Yeah, no, it definitely is. People. I'm. A, this to me is not a good question because it's just so obviously paperback. But it amazes me that people actually. I, I like the look of a hardcover, but everything else about hardcover is is worse. And honestly, sometimes I don't even like the look of hardcover as much as a paperback. But um, okay, good to hear. Okay, functional magnetic resonance imaging or electroencephalography. <laughs> 
I don't even know why you're asking me this. You know I'm an fMRI person. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, we're, I'll, we're, I'll take we're that fMRI game. Yeah, I'll take that spatial resolution over the temporal resolution any Every day. time. <laughs> Who needs temporal resolution, bro? Not me. When you're recording from outside the skull, it doesn't do you any good. I mean, yeah, that's not true. You, you, you can't right. answer questions with it, but yeah. you know what I mean. It's true. We, we're not we're not anti-EEG here, but uh, I, I had to pose the question. I had to pose it. Um, <laughs> episodic memory or semantic memory? <laughs> I'm going to say semantic memory because even episodic memory can't exist without semantic memory. Mm. That's interesting because I always, I kind of think about it. Semantic memory can't exist unless episodic memory because you have to encode it in the first, but, but really the, 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 the dichotomy is not real. They're interchangeable, but, um, episodic. Me- oh, wait, so you say, so you say semantic. I'm going with semantic. Yeah. And this is actually something I talked to. Because you do category to... learning and stuff too, right? related yeah. to that with like Dasha and stuff and that's all that's that's definitely more semantic than episodic it is but when i was an undergrad i actually worked in a lab that we dealt more with episodic memory uh so they did like a lot of autobiographical memory and actually future thinking studies and that was one thing i chatted with my pi about quite a bit was how false the dichotomy i guess between the two really is and then yeah. really can't by the way the uh other. Yeah, listeners, by the way, episodic memory is like memory for experiences and like per, like personal autobiographical experiences. Like Ben and I are talking right now and there's sights and sounds and emotions. <laughs> and so that's like episodic. Semantic is like fa- uh, memory for like knowledge and facts and stuff, just so the people know. Um, okay. Brain region. Hippocampus or cerebellum? Hippocampus. Yeah, that's what I figured. And honestly, these were just the two most interesting brain regions I could think of. But the cerebellum, there's, there's something mysterious about the cerebellum that I feel like will get uncovered in, in, in due time. It's Definitely, a slept on yeah. brain region. It's a slept on brain region. It just pops up everywhere when you'd least expect it. And nobody reports anything on it because they just doesn't make sense. And it's also a mini brain, bro. That's what cerebellum means. Mini, mini brain, some shit like that. And it's a very old brain structure so it's yeah i i'd have to go hippocampus as well i think but yeah cerebellum is definitely intriguing but i mean it's hard to not say hippocampus and it's probably my favorite brain region so yeah 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 um parietal lobe or temporal lobe (laughs) i gotta go temporal lobe yeah just because memory and stuff but you know i i do we do love a good parietal lobe bro attention I feel like it's got things with like numerosity and higher order like decision making and stuff. And it is quite yeah. involved in spatial navigation stuff too, which is mm-hmm. pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, the prior lobe is actually very involved with uh, memory as well, but um, more so the temporal lobe, more so the, the MTL, bro. Come on, you know. Yeah. I <laughs> um, think I know this one too, but free will or determinism? <laughs> or, or you could pitch a third option. Man, well, let's just say not free will. <laughs> not, okay, okay, I like that. I like that. Uh, very non-committal, as we you as the listener will will hear soon enough. Um, but okay, I think yeah, what, determinism comes with too many connotations that I don't want to attach myself to. So I like yeah. We'll say we'll say fair. soft determinism. <laughs> so so I I was a uh, pretty hard determinism until I don't, I've been hearing recently. There's like. And this is why I need to get more into like math and physics. But apparently, there's like some whole like theorem that has like actually proved that with a dynamical system, you can know all the because determinism is like okay, if you know all the initial conditions and all the possible like it's just like a bunch of billiard balls, right? Like if you knew everything, if you knew all the relevant 
like physical information you could plan out exactly how everything's gonna how everything's gonna go but I, apparently there's like some theorem that's like actually proved and i don't know if this is like how legit this is but it's like you can know all the initial conditions and everything in a um in a in a uh dynamical system and still not be able to predict like there's some element of like probability which is not pro free will or anything but anyway that's the that's what's made me back up on the hard determinism a little yeah. bit <clears throat> i think what you're talking about comes from quantum mechanics too right so it's yeah like, can any of us really understand it <laughs> yeah i know dude this is why i'm literally trying to get into math and physics and shit just so i can have a tr- like a basic understanding of this shit because i hate because there's something there bro there's something very interesting there i just don't know enough about it to like actually truly understand it so I'm trying to I'm trying to figure I'm trying to get to the bottom of that. But um, okay, last but not least, utilitarianism or deontology. And just for the listener, utilitarianism is utilitarianism is like trying to maximize the amount of well being, uh, like just no matter what decisions it like you could, for instance, would you sacrifice one of your own like family members to to save three strangers or or just there's a million variations of that kind of thing but it's the idea that you do the moral thing is to do whatever maximizes well-being deontology as i understand it is more based on like virtues and like your own personal values like there's certain things that you hold as moral values that you will not that you will stick to regardless of what the moral calculus comes out to so utilitarianism or deontology I don't know if I can firmly place myself in either camp, but if I had to pick between the two, I guess I might lean more towards utilitarianism. But yeah, maybe... it's it's hard not to. I, yeah. I I it's like for me too. It's like if I had to uh, pick a moral theory that I want everybody to like adhere to, I feel like it would have to be utilitarianism. But then it does lead to some to some obviously tricky. Uh, conclusions but i yeah i don't know how i'd answer that one either yeah a little combination about non-committal bro stay stay non-committal follow and yeah, non-committal. <laughs> well i think we've talked about this briefly like i i enjoy nietzsche's moral philosophy i guess so sort of and an moralism was... or a moral relativism yeah. of sorts i guess yeah um at least a rejection rejection of objective morality so yeah although that's more utilitarianism me but yeah 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 it definitely no, leans that way yeah <laughs> yeah to him as i get it it's like morality is like this like singularity like there is obvious there could never be some like true possible answer and any any idea of that what we have is being like morally grounded i feel like he would say is just an accident of our historical and cultural backgrounds and everything particularly with christianity and like what we can because it's like okay no okay even though christianity we've we've ditched that right but there's still we can still say there's still like truly moral and truly immoral things he'd be like if you say that it's basically just that's even though you say you got rid of christianity whatever you put there is still kind of just residual from christianity or some other historical cultural context that's how that's my that's on my at least on my first reading of nietzsche that's that's what i get but okay cool now now the viewers know ben inside and out uh thank you ben he's in his office right now and and he's joined me here so why don't we go go ahead and just jump into the opening segment okay cool opening segment is what are you currently reading right now uh why'd you pick it up and how are you liking it yeah okay uh so i actually recently finished the first book in the dune series oh you did yeah so i just started the second book so i'm like two chapters into dune messiah interesting okay what were your thoughts on original dune uh, I was definitely a fan. Yeah, a lot of interesting religious stuff going on. 
yeah, kind of political yeah. and religious satire. Um, yeah, really philosophy cool. Philosophy, too. It's yeah, like philosophical. Yeah, exactly. World building with the sand. Definitely. And yeah. I want to get some of this spice stuff. Right. <laughs> I, I, want, I want some spice. <laughs> actually, no. It's it's not actually good, right? It's like, it kind of fucks. It's like it's like heroin, Loki, right? It's sort of, yeah. It's a weird combination. Yeah, I guess it'd be like a cross. But, but he gets like psychedelic with it, right? Like exactly. he, he needs yeah. that shit for, uh, what does he do? He like the can see shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Wait, what's his name? Paul? Mm-hmm. Paul Atreides? Atreides, Nice. Yeah, yeah. Wait, isn't Atreides a Greek name? Now that I think about it, I believe that shit is. I wonder if that's where that came from. It's possible. I wow, okay. Um, I remember Dune being kind of rambly at times. <clears throat> it felt like, especially in the very beginning of the book, there was still a lot of like, like what you called like the world building, I think, yeah, going on. So, yeah. uh, at times, yes, but I feel like once it started to pick up, then it was just like every chapter was yeah, like... Yeah, it was c- cool. And then they have like the sandworms and shit and like the... Yeah. the he gets like ecological with that shit, basically. Like yeah. the Dune world is like, you can tell he did his research on that. It's and then thorough, like the, yeah. the suits where the they like suits, take yeah. their evaporation and shit... Um, okay, yeah, we're joined too by our, my dog Huck, who always um, tunes in when someone comes over. So, um, Dune Messiah is the second one. Yep. I read that one. That's where I stopped. Okay, just not even for any particular reason. I do, I think, remember liking the first Dune better. But let me know because some people like. I think they like Messiah better. So. Okay. I bought the whole trilogy, actually. Even though it's not a trilogy, I think well, it's like there's like seven of those bitches, right? Yeah, like, so I think Frank Herbert wrote six of them before he passed away. So the first three, mm-hmm. I think, though, are kind of like a trilogy, and I okay. think the other three kind of take place at different points in the, the okay. timeline okay. Of, of the Duneverse. Shit, I should have just... Duneverse. <laughs> um, I should have just finished that shit. I was two-thirds of the way. And I didn't even not, like... If I tell you why I stopped reading it, it will sort of be, like a spoiler so I, I won't and then also I was misguided so I'm just gonna we're just gonna leave it there um, sounds so, good um, I'll report back <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. do that let's see I am reading right now Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison author okay. of Beloved it is very fucking good I don't know if this is like your realm really but it's it's like I read Beloved and I really liked it. It was like a great book and everything. And that's like what she that's her big one, right? Like but Song of Solomon is just hitting different, bro. And okay. it, it's like very I don't something about it is just like enchanting. Like this she grabbing me by the neck and like making me read this shit. It just sucks me into its like little world. And it's it's like I'm not even sure it's like a book I would normally be like this into, but I'm like fully on board with this shit. So yeah, I'm I'm thoroughly enjoying. Let's see. I'm also reading. You might um. This might be more your speed. Cosmos by Carl Sagan. Okay, interesting. Very good, very fucking good book. Um, I'm like two, I'm like two thirds of the way through, and it's just space, bro. It's just space, like all the different aspects. Like he talks about like extraterrestrial life and shit, and just the scale of the universe, and and just like history and like the history and politics behind like the science but it, it's it's very good I, I think you might be a fan you're usually reading more than one thing at once yeah oh regular yeah <laughs> yeah it's much to my like detriment yeah uh, really like, okay when i so okay this is actually like a thing this is so i i don't know what it, it's naturally coming up so i've been like diagnosed with adhd or whatever right blah 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 point is it like it all made sense because it's like in uh college i would literally go to school with like three books and I would like read one chapter, read the go to the next book, read one chapter, go to the next book, read one chapter, or else I could like I could never read more than one 
like little sitting of a book so it just um that's wild and, and i think i i'm better with it like i won't go chapter 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 but i am like i do basically read like at, at least like one book different every like i cycle through them still interesting <clears throat> but i don't know how it works or i'll just hit like two or three in one day I could do it if, like, I'm reading one fiction and one nonfiction book. I can handle that, that sometimes. That helps. But, yeah, I don't think I could do, like, two fiction especially at the same time. Yeah, actually, now I think about it, I think I do kind of, now that I'm, like, thinking about it, it usually is, like, a fiction and nonfiction and, like, a short story collection or an okay. essay collection. Yeah. And actually, all those books right there, I'm, I'm technically reading. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. And for the viewer, there's, I'd say, at least, like, six. But... They're all collections of like, they're all standalone things. Like they're just collections of essays. One of those are like myth, actually like two or three of those are just like myths, which are like two or three pages. And then there's just like a ton of them. So it's just, I'll pick them up when I'm, when I'm feeling it and then song of Solomon and then cosmos. So that's, that's, and the Kindle right there, which holds a whole nother host of things, including a short story collection by Shirley Jackson, but again, short stories. So it's like, individual standalone pieces yeah that makes sense okay well excellent now the people know what we are reading they have been satisfied and we can uh proceed so okay i'm just going to give a little bit of background on thomas nagel and the the essay so thomas nagel born in 1937 in yugoslavia to german jewish refugees which i did not see that coming and also, amazingly, this is, I believe, the first author ever on Big Nate Short Story Club who is still alive, I believe. And I was uh, yes. kind of surprised Nagel was alive. I'm not going to lie. I assumed he would be long dead. But I think he's like 80-something. I don't know. Crunch the numbers, listener. Crunch the numbers. Born 1937. He is professor, professor emeritus at NYU. Which emeritus just means you are like, you don't actually do anything, right? Like, well, yeah, emeritus, you kind of have your hand in things you want to have your hand in, but you're typically not teaching or that's the life. mentoring grad students. Yeah, yeah, you're just yeah, kind yeah. of doing a little bit of research. <laughs> yeah, motherfucker's 80, I think. Some, crush yeah. the numbers, listener, but he's like he turns 80 85 this year, I guess. Okay, right? nice. Yeah. He, he no, 86 this year. Okay, yeah. nice. nice. <laughs> um, yeah, so apparently his main, we were kind of talking about this too, his main interests were like legal philosophy, political philosophy, and also among all the other things, ethics. Which is funny because this book or this story has nothing to do with any of those at, at all, actually. <laughs> yeah, you might be able to say it has ethical implications. But I was it thinking isn't that, directly... that. I was also like, I actually don't know if it does have ethical implications. Maybe, yeah. With with some of the animal consciousness stuff, I I, I, I could see that. I could yeah. see that. But um, I don't know. I'm interested to read some of that because I was telling you too. The I'm I've read this essay as part of this collection of uh, his his book of essays called Mortal Questions. And none of those, I mean, a couple of those, like, satisfy, like, the legal, political stuff. But there's just, like, a whole range of topics. Just, like, uh, like death, absurdism. Like, there, he has some good stuff. Well, it looks cool. Like, they've got, like, a sick figure and everything. Of uh, brain bisection, which I think is split brain stuff. I'm assuming he, he wrote about that. And then we have this, panpsychism. So I would not have guessed those were his main things. But like I also told you, he um, studied under... John Rawls, who is again the author or the the one who created this like super famous thought experiment in I guess you would say like political or maybe legal philosophy, yeah, which it's just like which is called the original position, the veil of ignorance. I think they're interchangeable. Where it's just like how would you structure society if you knew that you would be like randomly assigned to be a member of any any level of the society? Like how would you design it? 
and that's supposed to be a thought experiment to get like at like perfect fairness like this like a ra- quote-unquote rational organization of society so anyway he's also just like a very famous like philosopher john rawls so john rawls thomas nagel would not have would not have guessed but that's that's the mashup I did not know I needed. <laughs> and Nagel also just put in hella work apparently because he has like over 60 years of like professional publications. Like he started when he was 22, which just makes, I'm 26 and, and I never had a publication to my name, bro, actually. But uh, do you, ha- you, not yet? I have one that was actually submitted to a journal this week. Oh shit, I'm the second congrats, author bro. on and close to submitting another one I'll be first author on. But yeah, yeah. I'm slacking for grace. No, dude. <laughs> hey, no, it's it's crazy. First off, it's amazing what these like, ink, I feel like the bar just gets raised higher and higher. Like I know people now that it's like, they have publications in undergrad. It's like, that's fucking insane. Like yeah. actual publications yeah. in undergrad. It's like, no, that wasn't that even is, an opportunity in the lab. That no, I was yeah. That's of, like yeah. a non, like, it's amazing to me that that even happened. But anyway, even at 22, he just started churning shit out and let's see it says 60 years of publications if he started at 22 i'm assuming so he's got to be over 80 and then um i guess he's still publishing i don't know bro or has in the not too distant past yeah right yeah exactly okay so shout out thomas nagel uh this essay we are talking about what is it like to be a bat published 1974 and is one of the most like widely cited influential just most important thought experiments in all of philosophy of like consciousness philosophy of mind so listener that is the thing you get to you will be you are lucky enough to hear us discuss today two of the greatest minds uh, alive right now to uh solve the problem of consciousness so let's get right into it first i want to ask what were your just general impressions when you when you first read either when you first read this or on the reread or both but what was your initial like reaction to to reading the piece yeah, I guess I think every time I read it, I have a similar reaction, which is obviously he's arguing against a current, I guess, conception of what something is, at least yeah. at the time he was writing this. And still, for sure. Right, I, and I, still I, is, I say, yes. Yeah. But he's also not being very committal about a lot of things. Like, yeah, he leaves funny. a lot of things open-ended. I think that's something that I always like, remember. We'll have to talk but, about that. Yeah. There's, there's a couple things, interesting yeah. things that he's... he, It's like... Like, because he'll like give this whole critique about it, but he's like, it's not saying it's necessarily wrong. It just like we need more information or types of. But yeah, he yeah. is he is very noncommittal. But yeah. you know, that's the classic philosopher move. It's, it depends, bro. That's the classic psych answer, bro. Someone answer you asks you a question, say, well, it depends. <laughs> that's that's him in yeah. this essay. But um, yeah, I my impression. First off, I love his writing. It's yeah. like as far as philosophy writing goes. It's it's like a pleasure to read to to the to someone who hasn't read like academic philosophy. I could see this being like a little dry, although he does have fun with it. Like yeah, he, he does he definitely have fun, has, fun but just like it. the writing style and shit. I mm-hmm. found it like at least relative to some fucking philosophers, bro. I mean, you probably know this. Just like these, they can get so convoluted with how they write and everything, and just like like what are we even fucking talking about? This was like a very clear piece of writing. It's like kind of fun. I really enjoyed his footnotes as well. Like he, he goes off. They're on, important. He goes yeah. off on the footnotes. <laughs> um, but what I particularly liked about this is it's just like, especially when I was first getting into like the consciousness stuff, as like as like like the philosophy of it. It was always like the number one difficulty for me is like what even is consciousness, right? It's like the most elusive thing to like describe and define, and that's like st- I honestly feel like so much of what people disagree about with consciousness is just them talking having different 
ideas of what it actually is. And this paper is just like the new benchmark. It's like, that is like the perfect definition of, of consciousness to me. It's just like everything clicked into place and he does it with like this fun thought experiment. You know, what is it like to be a bat? Which like, we'll get, we'll get into all this, but that was one of the things I loved about this. And I feel like that's why it's so widely cited and so influential is because it's just like, it's a very complicated topic to talk about, but in this essay, he lays out like a, a wonderful description of it. And like the problem, the problems with it. Like I, in fact, I'm kind of, I'm remiss because I wanted to, the next essay in the uh, collection that I have is panpsychism. And it's like, I would be very interested on his, on his take on panpsychism, especially after this. I was just saying that was published after this paper, right? I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to say yes. I'm okay. going to say yes. Then yeah. It's interesting to see how his viewpoint evolved over time as he yeah. thought about this. And I don't know more. what he would say about, cause I think we'll, we'll need to talk about this yeah. at some point, but he definitely I, alludes to some things even yeah. in this paper regarding panpsychism or the possibility of it. But so. then he also was like, but pan, but then he also says, uh, physicalism is like not necessarily wrong. You know, it's like, again, the non-committal thing. So that's why I'm curious. But he also talks about, we have to be careful how we define physicalism yeah and that's where the panpsychism thing is kind of yeah yeah, we, yeah. We'll, we'll get it, there, it gets though. messy yeah, yeah it, it gets it gets <laughs> it gets messy for sure but um and it's just like i i maybe too i'm biased because i've read a couple of his other essays but um i just really like nagel as a writer i do his the other essay i've read was like on the absurd and it's very like written very similar to this where it's just like very clear again it's like kind of fun and he just lays out everything just like so concisely it just like effort like you you follow him every step of the way which i feel like a lot of philosophy writing is is not like that at all <laughs> so yeah uh props to thomas nagel and now without further ado we can get into the essay so the first line is consciousness is what makes the mind body problem really intractable perhaps that is why current discussions of the problem give it little attention or get it obviously wrong Okay, so he's just setting up the problem. Honestly, I think we should assume our listeners know nothing about philosophy at all. I was going to ask, should we talk about the mind-body problem? I think problem? we should, yeah. yeah. So I'm yeah. curious, because yes. even me, I have like a tenuous grasp on this. Okay. I'm How would you define roughly what the mind-body problem is? Sure, yeah. It's, I guess, establishing the relationship between the mind and the body that seem like two very different things. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess just like a brief outline of different perspectives on this idea. I mean, the first split would obviously be into like monism versus dualism, right? So Descartes kind of like the famous example of substance dualism where the mind and body he thought were literally two different substances that connected yeah. together through the pineal and, gland. And that or, like, and that, that does intuitively kind of make sense to me. In fact, I kind of wonder sometimes if I'm like a closet dualism, but a uh, dualist, cause it's, it's just like, yeah, that's the idea that there's like mind stuff. Like, you know, us talking, like the experience of us like talking and all our perceptions and everything we're like feeling is very different than like whatever is happening physically in the brain, right? And that to me is the mind-body problem, trying to map the relationship between like the physical activity of things and like the conscious experience of it. Yeah, exactly. I think the ultimate question, I guess, that the mind-body problem is trying to answer is, is the mind something over and above the body or the yeah. brain? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so yeah, exactly. It's kind of the central question there. Yeah, yeah. And, and then consciousness, of course, is, is the, the whole, he says it's the, the really- The first sentence, that's yeah, what makes it intractable, really intra right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, uh, yeah, that is like the, the fundamental thing. Because it's, again, yeah. how do you explain consciousness uh, in terms of the brain, in terms of activity in the brain, because he says it's not like other attempts at what he calls like reductionism, exactly. right? So he says what makes the yeah what makes the mind body problem unique and unlike the water H two O problem or the Turing machine IBM machine problem or the lightning electrical discharge problem or the gene DNA problem <laughs> or the oak tree hydrocarbon problem 
is ignored. Yep. <laughs> First off, that's just a funny sentence, bro. He leaves yeah, and he is ignored. But yeah, so that's the idea that it's like, okay, other things we can kind of do this for. Like a, an mm-hmm. oak tree, for instance. Ultimately, it is just a bunch of like hydrocarbon atoms just bonded together in some particular configuration and everything. Yeah. And it's like that is it makes sense to us that we could at some level explain like the qualitative aspect of the tree through reducing it to its like fundamental physical principles like that kind of maps on to um our intuitions whereas so and and then he says the gene dna problem the h2o like you know water has a qualitative aspect to it even though it's just a bunch of like dihydrogen monoxide molecules which in themselves don't have that qualitative property but then get them right but he's saying like those are not the same because those kind of operate at the same at, at some level of like similar explanation whereas he's saying like mental stuff and physical stuff are on like completely different planes of explanation that's more so he said what makes the mind body problem unique and then he names everything and then he says is ignored so that's that's him kind of laying the um problem out and then he says opening that door for later if you will yeah (laughs) he says we have at present no conception of what an explanation of the physical nature of a mental phenomenon would be And then he says, careful examination will show that no currently available concept of reduction is applicable to it. So basically just saying what I like, it it, it is fundamentally different from all these reductive problems with like electrical discharge and lightning, because it's like we can't, consciousness cannot, it's like almost by definition, like cannot be explained even remotely in terms of physical. Like it doesn't even make sense to say that basically is what he's kind of starting off with. Yeah, there's a couple of concepts I think in here that he discusses that we now come to know by other names that he doesn't actually use in the paper, but for, that's the first one, right? It's like he's talking about the hard problem of consciousness, yeah, even yeah, without yeah, yeah. using those words. And the hard problem of, well, yeah, it's not, it's basically what we've just been saying. The hard problem of consciousness is the idea that you yeah. cannot explain consciousness in terms of exactly. Whereas yeah. like the e- quote unquote easy problem of consciousness is like, you can map, you can like do the correlational work of mapping what activity in the brain corresponds to what conscious states that's that would be the quote-unquote easy problem of exactly. consciousness. the hard problem of consciousness is explaining how physical things give rise to consciousness at, at all period yeah but yeah go on um and then also you just quoted their part of his second paragraph and i think the sentence immediately after that is kind of um equally important because it sort of states his thesis and kind of gets back to what we were talking about earlier of him being very non-committal so essentially what he's arguing for in this paper as he says is Perhaps a new theoretical form can be devised for the purpose, but such a solution, if it exists, lies in the distant intellectual future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? Which I (laughs) honestly, yeah, I think my little critique of his whole argument here is is he's like ignore he's sweeping the problem under the rug there exactly i don't yeah. think any level of intellectual achievement discovery anything in principle will ever reveal that but and he doesn't even necessarily well, disagree with that either yeah i don't think but he again like you say he stays he stays non-committal yeah. and he says you know maybe someday we'll have something like that but at, pre- at present and that's like his that's part of his motivation for writing the whole paper is to just like lay the problem out so we can even begin to think about this and maybe do some of like that quote unquote intellectual work. But um, yes. yeah, yeah. So he kind of just poses the problem, right? The mind body problem. Okay. And then he, and then he's kind of like, okay, what even is consciousness? Like as, as like a concept. So he says, conscious experience is a widespread phenomenon. It occurs at many levels of animal life and it is very difficult to say in general what provides evidence of it. He said, parentheses, some extremists have been prepared to deny it even of mammals other than man. And that's just funny because it's just like some extreme. Because, you know, animal consciousness is like a very hotly like debated thing. And he just like basically he said he's basically like, I assume we all think animals are conscious, like at basically every level. But he, he says some extremists have been prepared to deny it. I mean, I agree. But like. 
you know, because other mammals include shit like, um, I was going to say birds, but that's not a mammal. Like Dolphins. Lo- yeah. Well, dolphins <laughs> are kind of intelligent. What's like They're a low mammal? What's oh, like okay, a low mammal? Rats. Are they, are they mammals? They're, they don't lay eggs. So they're they, actually, they are mammals. Well, yeah, but they're more intelligent, I guess. Than. Yeah, okay. Point is, it's, <laughs> it's just funny that, like, he's, he's saying, like, you know, some people have been prepared. Some go so far as to say other mammals don't have consciousness, whereas I feel like that's actually, like, a very highly debated thing. I agree with him. But anyway, he says, no doubt it occurs in countless forms totally unimaginable to us on other planets and other solar systems throughout the universe. That's kind of the fun coming in too. Like he, he does get like a little extraterrestrial in, in, oh, yeah. in the in the essay. So, but then he says, no matter how the form may vary, the fact that an organism has conscious experience at all means basically that there is something it is like to be that organism. An organism has conscious mental states if and only if there is something it is like to be that organism. Something it is like for the organism. So yeah. that's just a great definition, and then he's gonna take it even further with like the, the bat stuff. But I, I I think that sums up perfectly my conception of consciousness. Exactly. And what is the word we might use to to talk about what he's talking about now? That again, Wait. he doesn't actually use in this essay at all. But he's essentially just talking about qualia, right? Oh yeah, yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Without yeah. using the word. That's, that's Daniel Dennett, right? Who um, came who up first, with that? Or? Well, actually, I'm not sure. And, and qualia yeah. is just like the specific, like conscious states, right? How would you actually define qualia? That's one of those words. I know it when I see it. I can't. I couldn't put. Well, a def- uh, just read the first line of the next paragraph for me, and then he'll tell you what it. Conscious. Oh wait. Uh, we may call this the subjective character of experience. Yeah. No. That. that is, that is exactly it, yeah. yeah. And um, and I think qualia can get even could get to like specific aspects of consciousness. Like pain, for instance, is one instance of like qualia, right? Yeah. Would that be correct? Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay, so he's got so he lays out this little definition of consciousness, and then he says to that consciousness cannot be explained again by in terms of physicalism, and physicalism again, like physicalism, reductionism, materialism, they all kind of like blend together. But it's the it's physicalism, same thing. Like, how can you explain consciousness in terms of the physical activity of the brain? So he says, if physicalism is to be defended, which by the way is like I, I would argue, what do you think the the pulse on like because we're in cognitive neuroscience. I do think physicalism is kind of like the underlying assumption for most like scientists that study the brain. Um, I think that is possibly true. I think non-committal. I see. I think he's learning from Nagel. (laughs) I think some sort of monism, you might say, is widely is sort of yeah. Yeah, I'm not an assumption, but I'm not sure if physicalism again. It depends on how you define what is physical, because some people will tell you that the one thing that there is is waves or fields. Yeah, and he even actually talks about that a little bit too later. But okay, okay. So anyway, but so he says, if physicalism is to be defended, consciousness itself must be given a physical account. But every subjective phenomenon is essentially connected with a single point of view, and it seems inevitable that an objective physical theory will abandon that point of view. Yeah. So it's basically like, you know, if you we have to account for consciousness in some way. If physicalism wants to do that, it has to do so in physical terms. But physical, anything physical is necessarily objective and has to actually abstract away from the subjective. That's the whole point of what objective even is. So it's basically saying, like, there's no way we can try and explain consciousness in terms of physical things without actually like completely ignoring the question in the first place right exactly yeah this is one of the things that becomes central to his argument and this is yeah exactly where he first introduces it is that difference between subjectivity and objectivity Mm -hmm. and that makes all the difference with you know these things we're talking about because like you just said any sort of physicalist theory is trying to reduce things to what is objectively there yeah that's that's exactly it yeah Yeah. that that is physicalism as i understand it is actually the idea that it's like there is only the physical there is nothing over and above the physical at all 
everything can be ultimately be explained. And yes, it might get compl- complex. Yes, it might have like interactive effects and dynamical systems and everything, right? Like there can be huge complexity to everything, but everything is ultimately physical. Exactly. That's, that's how I understand it. Yes. But he is saying here, no matter how complex or anything, like they just don't map on to one another. Or yeah. if you try any, any physical perspective is going to necessarily like literally like abandon the subjective point of view, like almost by, by definition. definition. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and we, he, we, we'll talk about that more later too, yeah. but that this is him posing the problem. And then, and then he, then we get, what is it like to be a bat? So then he says, this is a great sentence. He says, I assume we all believe that bats have experiences. Oh, I highlighted that too. <laughs> yeah. He says, he said P1. I, I assume we all believe. So um, after all, they are mammals and there is no more doubt that they have experience than that mice or pigeons or whales have experience. And that's just funny because I, that's what I meant where it's like, I feel like a lot of people would actually object to the fact that like mice have consciousness. Uh, and Oh, another thing I wanted to say too about consciousness is it's distinct. What I like about the idea of it, like what it is like to be an organism, consciousness is not to me related to mental processes, like the actual cognitive processes of like attention or memory or decision, any anything like that. It's just like the actual qualitative, like you can have a very dumb animal conceivably that is not very cognitively like uh low <laughs> and but they can still have just as uh, just as robust a conscious experience as like you know you or i so yeah. that that's another thing i like about that but it's a um, topic that came up in journal club the other day too yeah, when you're talking bro, about that, we, that dude, like consciousness does not equate cognition or yeah, these mental processes that you're talking N- dude, about Nick, we, dude we stayed like late it was me <laughs> nick and audrea and we bro we busted the whiteboard i had p1 <laughs> p2 conclude everything bro that motherfucker he bro we've been talking anyway We'll put it. We'll put it in that. We'll okay. save that for next journal club. <laughs> okay. Once we're like three drinks in, and then um, then we can return to this. Uh, but so he says. Okay. Yeah. They, we assume that that bats have experience. Bats, although more closely related to us than other species, nevertheless present a range of activity and a sensory apparatus so different from ours that the problem I want to pose is exceptionally vivid. And I do think the the bat is an excellent choice here because then he goes on to say, even without the, be- the benefit of philosophical reflection, anyone who has spent some time in an enclosed space with an excited bat knows what it is to encounter a fundamental uh fundamentally italics alien form of life and um a couple of things here one he's i think he's on point bats are aliens basically like there are some crazy ass animals it's insane to me that they're actually mammals that's like that's that's wild but um another thing that was uh funny about this is apparently thomas nagel like he was inspired to choose the bat in part because like bats frequently came into his house because when I first read that line, he said, anyone who spent some time like in an enclosed space with an excited bat, I'm like, I don't think I've ever had that. Yeah, I, 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 can't yeah. Say that. I can't say I know what you mean. But apparently, I, I can just like picture this fool like just having, trying to get a bat out of his house. And then, and then he, he says, a fundamentally alien form of life. I can imagine it being pretty gnarly to try. Because, dude, they're like ugly too. They're like, they got like pig nose and like just, they're just weird looking. They're just very weird looking. And then the the whole okay the whole point of him choosing the bat is because it's like okay yeah we assume they have conscious experience but then he says most bats perceive the external world primarily by sonar or echolocation detecting the reflections from objects within range of their own rapid subtly modulated high frequency shrieks their brains are designed to correlate the outgoing impulses with the subsequent echoes which enables them to make precise discriminations of distance size shape motion and texture comparable to those we make by vision 
So that I think is the honestly kind of the genius of this paper is it's like they can do all the same kind of like perceptual behavioral like they can determine even something as fine as like texture right like the the feeling on of a particular like insect that it's about to get through echolocation like it's just it's like impossible to us it truly is impossible to imagine like what that would be like to do that via like sonar like you know we can look at like a hardwood floor and a carpet and just like okay yeah we you can just tell right off the bat those are different textures different forms but the idea of being able to do that through like shrieking and then like having the sounds bounce back at you and then like doing it like that and then things like motion and size too it it, it is just it is really like an alien form of life like that's that's where i think is but again he says, I assume we all believe bats have consciousness. So it does pose the problem um, very well. Yeah. So and then and then he basically goes to say, like, OK, some people would say, like, I can imagine what it's like to be a bat. Right. He says it will not help to try to imagine that one has webbing on one's arms, which enables one to fly around at dusk and dawn, catching insects in one mouth. Nor does it help to imagine that one spends the day hanging upside down by one's feet in an attic. This is also where the fun comes in. He's like, you know, <laughs> and, and he said, insofar as I can imagine this, which is not very far, <laughs> it tells me only what it would be like for me to behave as a bat behaves. But that is not the question. I want to know what it is like for a bat to be a bat. So again, this is like, because it's like, you can kind of attempt, to, I guess, to like tr mentally put yourself into the perspective of what it'd be like to like use this echolocation and everything. But you doing that is not actually what it's like to be a bat at all. It's you putting yourself in the bat's shoes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then and then he says, even if I could by gradual degrees be transformed into a bat, nothing in my present constitution enables me to imagine what the experiences of such a future stage of myself thus metamorphosed would be like. So it's like, okay, you can even take an argument where it's like, what if your brain is gradually replaced with like a, a bat's brain? Then you would have to know what it's like. And it's like, okay, maybe, but like you won't know what it's like until your brain is actually like getting switched out, right? Like you yeah. won't know until you're actually like there. And then at that point, like nothing about you right now could even possibly imagine what it's like. In the same sense that he even says that it's like, it, like a bat imagine a bat or like he goes on to say like you know an intelligent martian some completely alien form of life imagine them trying to understand what it's like to be you like that also doesn't work it's just like there's there's an impassable gap between what it is like what it is like to be us and what it is like to be something else right yeah i think it might be on the next page he starts to get into though yeah i feel like he has this sort of weird um dichotomy going on here and for a little bit where at one point, he expands this by saying the problem is not confined to exotic cases, yeah. however, for it exists between one person and another. However, yeah. he doesn't take this as far as it may seem in that sentence, because he also then talks about how it's really the type of the experience that's important. So if you have the same sort of machinery, biological machinery, if you will, that you can actually know to some degree what it is like for someone else to have an experience. Yeah, that, that I'm not sure is much if I yeah. agree with, so I, I don't know if you're interested. Yeah, in... no, 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 I, I agree with it. Because he's yeah. basically like, you know, like, for instance, you and me, we have more or less like the same like perceptual heart. Well, okay, because he even, so he does a couple of things here. Because he yeah. also, so he talks, so, okay, he goes from bat and then he goes like, this even applies to people that are like, for instance, deaf and blind. We, yep. for instance, could never know what it's like to be deaf and blind in the same sense that they could not know what it's like to have like sight and hearing, right? Yep. So that's in just another, so he's like, it's not just bats, there's also that. But then he does say, yeah, exactly. Like for instance, with you and me, where we presumably have like the same common perceptual stuff, 
we could understand each other's conscious experience. Although, yeah, I, I actually would, I think I would disagree with that, right? Like, yeah, I, yeah, cause you can never do. actually, the, this is, I mean, then there's a whole other can of worms here, but it's like, who, how would I know you're not seeing the color blue right there in a different color that I'm seeing, right? Even though we have the same kind of like hardware and, and stuff like that, like you just could never actually know, like there's a greater degree of connection and like, uh, yeah, overall, I guess, like, reliability, that's not yeah, quite the Yeah, like, we'll have a closer approximation right, to yeah, what it's like yeah. for the other person to have a certain experience. But, it, yeah, I, I agree instance, with you yeah, that I don't think under, we yeah. can completely actually know what it's like yeah, for that other person yeah. to be having an experience. And yeah. the hard stance on that is, like, we could, you could argue we could not, I could not know what it's like to be you just as much as I could not know what it's like to be a bat. That, that could be, like, the hard stance on it. It's just, like, you can only ever possibly know, like, your, yourself. Right, the degree of overlap is interesting, and he and he revisits that later. Actually, he does. But, yeah, uh, yeah. So he's this is him just sort of like playing with the with the problem some more. But overall, making the point of like there is like a subjective point of view, right? In which you know we could disagree perhaps on like the degree to which we can relate to other people's subjective points of view. But like for instance, with the bat or even like the blind or deaf person, it's like that. There's there's a gap there that you you cannot pass. Right. Exactly. So then he says, whatever may be the status of facts about what it is like to be a human being or a bat or a Martian, these appear to be facts that embody a particular point of view. And this bears directly on the mind-body problem. For if the facts of experience, facts about what it is like for the experience organism, are accessible only from one point of view, then it is a mystery how the true character of experiences could be revealed in the physical operation of that organism. So the way I kind of think about that is... So we're talking about like a subjective point of view, right? I'm thinking, for instance, what if we are looking at like a bat's brain, right? The physical operations of that organism, as he says. The bat's brain is something that could, in theory, be investigated across multiple different points of view. That's the whole point of being it being objective, right? Like us, like one species of animal can perceive like particular wavelengths of light in the same, like it might, they might perceive it differently, but they can study like the physical characteristics because physical aspects are necessarily something that transcend, like stretch across multiple points of view. But then he's saying like, if you're looking only at the brain, only at like the physical operations of this organism, it, it is a mystery. And this is kind of, this is low-key the hard problem of conscious, how you would imagine like where and why and in what form the conscious, the conscious states would be um, what what that would look like. Like if you're just looking at bat brain, there's there, you have no reason to think at all that there'd be consciousness there, except insofar as we've drawn like a relation from like you know the brain to the mind, right? There's nothing about the physical system itself that like speaks to some necessary emergent property of of like conscious subjective experience. Yeah, exactly. And I also like the one footnote he has there um, when he's talking about the expression "what it is like to." Uh, mm -hmm. You know he. He does point out that that can be misleading in English um, yeah, because yeah, it yeah. does not mean what in our experience it resembles, but rather how it is for the subject himself. So I yeah. think that just, you know, furthers your point that you're making where it's like, yeah, it's, there's no way for us to know like what it would actually be like for that bat. Yeah, even the, even, the, even the question what it is like to be the bat is, is kind of misleading. It's smuggling in that you would be able to know, right? even yeah. though it has no, bears no resemblance at all. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so then he says, it is difficult to understand what could be meant by the objective character of an experience apart from the particular point of view of the experiencer. After all, what would be left of what it was like to be a bat if one removed the viewpoint of the bat? And I think that that hits it on the head. Because like, objective, 
the, like, the word objective basically literally means that it can be observed and understood from many points of view and by individuals with different perceptual systems. And when you try and take an objective point of view of like the bat's subjective experience, you are literally by definition like ignoring the problem completely. Like why, yeah, he said, yeah again, what would, what would be left of what it is like to be a bat if you remove the viewpoint of the bat. And that is the that is going from what that is what you do when you go transition from the subjective to the objective. You are literally like by definition like getting rid of the actual thing itself that you are trying to study objectively. Yeah. So then he says if the subjective character of experience is fully comprehensible only from one point of view, then any shift to greater objectivity does not take us nearer to the real nature of the phenomenon. It takes us further away from it. And then he has something interesting because he then he kind of comes back full circle with the idea of reductionism. He says, in a sense, the objections to reductionism are already detectable in successful cases of reduction. For in discovering sound to be, in reality, a wave phenomenon in air or other media, we leave behind one viewpoint to take up another, and the auditory human viewpoint that we leave behind remains unreduced. So even like with the idea that he mentioned earlier, like, yeah, you can reduce sound to like the physical waveforms, right? Like when you go, when you explain sound in terms of waveforms, like what you're doing is dr taking sound actually out of the equation completely and just studying waveforms. Like you've not, you failed to reduce anything at all. You've just switched to a different problem kind of like covertly. And, 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 and like, it's almost like a thing of language, which he talks about later where it's like, you know, that it's like when he tries to, when, when, when you say something like sound is reducible in terms of waveforms, like you're actually smuggling something in there that it's like, you're comparing two completely unlike things. That's yeah. yeah that's ba So yeah, that, that's his kind of, that's one of, I feel like this is his big argument, honestly, is, is the idea that like physicalism or any kind of understanding of the brain in terms of like physical processes Physical, if it's anything, has to be objective. Like that, that's what he says. And going, trying to study the subjective in terms of the objective just is like, like literally nonsense. Like it doesn't actually, they're on completely different levels of explanation. And any, anything you do in that realm is actually explaining something else entirely. And while failing to, ignoring, I mean, that's what he even says in the beginning. Like they're ignoring the phenomenon itself completely. Yeah, exactly. That's the hard problem that he's trying to figure out. Right? I honestly think that is what a lot of this essay is, is like, yeah. uh, like outlining this hard problem and like trying, try, like dealing with like how people try, like it's almost, yeah, it's, it is almost like the OG thing. Cause it's like people who try and solve, like people who try and give explanations for the hard problem always do it through terms of like physical means. And they just do it more like, Oh no, it's about information processing or it's about like this, that and the other, but it's like, you're still doing the same thing. Like you're ultimately still trying to explain in terms trying to explain something in terms of something that it like are just on a, in completely different terms and in fact while like literally ignoring the thing completely then he kind of gives like the physicalism objection to like this is what the physical physicalist would say to everything that he's been saying so um, he basically says that the physicalist explanation for all of this is that mental states are states of the body. Mental events are physical events, right? That That is one of the claims that he thinks a physicalist would make, right? Like the physicalist would object to all this. It's like, no, no, no. Like when we're talking about mental states, when we're talking about conscious states, like it is identical to like the actual physical happenings in the brain. Like they are one and the same. That's at least how I understood it, right? So mental states are states of the body. Mental events are physical events. What could be clearer than the words is and are? That's what he says. 
But then he goes on to say, when we are told that something like X is Y, we know how it is supposed to be true. But when the two terms of identification are very disparate, it may not be so clear how it could be true. So for instance, he gives an example, right? So, okay, you're saying, the physicalist is saying, physical states are the same thing as mental states, right? That's like their claim. But when you say something is equivalent to something else, something is something else, the assumption there that is that they are actually like like terms, right? So he gives an example where he says, some people, like a lot of times people are told at an early age that for instance, matter is energy. But despite the fact that they know what is mean, like, you know, matter is energy, okay. Most of them never form a conception of what this makes this claim true because they lack the theoretical background. Like when you tell me, for instance, matter is energy, like, yes, you're saying that, but there's no, like, I need more requisite information to map one thing onto the other. And I honestly think matter and energy is another example of like the, um, it's just almost like another physical, because matter can ultimately be explained in by energy or vice versa, right? If you knew all the theoretical physics equations, right, you actually could map one thing from the other. I think like my personal opinion is like it doesn't like no amount of scientific information whatsoever will ever get you like you can know every single possible aspect about the brain and it will tell you it will reveal nothing about why consciousness actually emerges. That's my thoughts. I mean, I'm hesitant even the way you say that consciousness emerges at all. Um, okay, I could, I could feel that. We do need to have our panpsychist talk. I mean, okay, actually, well, what, what are your thoughts on this? My, okay, because this is, this, it's, I, what I liked about this essay, actually, is it can it approached this problem in a way that I have never actually even thought about it. Because the way I come about it is like, okay, I, I, I'm like, I'm on board with him with everything here, right? Like, consciousness cannot be explained in terms of, like, the physical brain, right? There's just that impassable gap. And, I, and like I said, I think in principle, no, like, like I said, you could know every po single possible thing you could ever want to know about the brain. And that literally tells you nothing about how we get from point A to point B. So to me, that just becomes like an irreducible thing, like how, and I think we've talked about this and I think you had an, uh, an objection or something, but like space and time, for instance, to me are like just fundamental properties of the universe right like they just a lot of physicists would disagree with yeah that, i know okay <laughs> what you can get it gets it does get crazy but like this this cup for instance is an instantiation of like the property of like matter which is ultimately like space and it's like how do you explain the existence of space for instance assuming we're just not going like crazy physics level like how do you explain the existence of space like you there is no it just is it's one of those like brute facts fundamental things that it, it, there is no further explanation for the existence of space or the existence of time it, it just simply is and that's what i think consciousness is it's like you can't no, again no matter what you know about the brain it, it does nothing to explain how you get consciousness in the first place and that to me is that's where i go with panpsychism panpsychism dear listener is basically <laughs> just the idea that consciousness as i understand it is a fundamental property of the universe like it's it's like just written throughout the entire cosmos in the same way that like fields of space and time are it, with a little asterisk there yeah so even then by your own definition then you can't say that consciousness emerges if you're calling it a fundamental yeah property okay yeah that might be a yeah yeah i i agree I and agree. i think where a lot of panpsychists would go further is and this is depending on your interpretation of panpsychism, I guess, but it's more that, so you talk about time and space being fundamental properties and likening consciousness to them as another fundamental property of the universe. Yeah, but I, I think know. a lot of panpsychists would say that consciousness is the only fundamental substance of the universe and that time and space are the emergent properties. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is this what we would call idealism? 
or no. Sorry, listeners, a lot of terms, but it's all right. This, this is good. Not necessarily. No. Okay, okay, we won't even touch that. We won't <laughs> even touch that. But yeah. um, okay, I don't, I don't know if I would. I'd have to give that. I'd have to give that more thought. But, but this is where I think. I mean, Nagel even kind of hints at this, or at least allows room for it in this article as well, right? And this is kind of when we touched on. He brings back at the end of the article, like, how do you define physicalism? And it's maybe the way we're defining physicalism that makes these problems so difficult to answer. And maybe that's why we're asking the wrong problems or the wrong questions to begin with, right? Because what if physicalism wasn't about matter or energy or it wasn't about fields or waves, mm. but maybe the physical, what we're calling the physical, what if we just replace that as this like conscious manifold rather than yeah, yeah, something yeah. like a waveform or some sort of, you know, fields theory or matter and energy. Yeah, because he does say classic. he does say something towards the end where it's like basically he like like I've kind of alluded to. He says physicalism is not necessarily false, but you would need more information. So basically the idea that, yeah, our understanding of what physical actually is, there might be something that some property or something that which like the mental, the functional and the physical all are like necessary features of like some further more fundamental like thing and it, so it yeah. de- so it depends on how you're describing physical yeah, exactly that, that's what and you, that's, that's where what i mean going back to your example that you came uh, that you brought out of the paper here about matter and energy um i mean he says at the present time the status of physicalism is similar to that which the hypothesis that matter is energy would have had if uttered by a pre-socratic philosopher yeah. right so it's saying that like you know thousands right. of years ago we couldn't even talk about this matter energy idea because we just didn't have the framework in which to understand it right, yet right, right. um just as right now like maybe we just don't understand physicalism at all. So it's like a weird thing to try to talk about and make sense of because yeah. maybe what we're calling the physical is actually not physical in the way we think of it. Like, yeah, people. exactly. He's saying like the pre-Socratic, just like old ancient motherfuckers, like to tell them matter is energy, it was almost be in the same sense, again, that we are. They would they would say the same thing I'm saying, that there is like, no, matter and energy, the under, understanding one in terms of the other, is there's an in, unpassable gap, like there's an irreducible thing and like it, that... You know, they might say what I'm saying, where it's like it doesn't even make sense to talk about one in terms of the other. Whereas if they had, you know, whatever, centuries down the line, the knowledge that we had, you could see it actually is explained. I don't think anything like that is is possible, personally. In principle, I'm saying in principle. I just can't see, unless you completely change what physical means. If we're going to say, but in that case, it's something different. When I'm when I when most people talk about like physicalism in, in terms of explaining consciousness in the brain, they're talking about the action potentials that take place within the biological tissue of like the brain. And, and that's what they're talking about. Exactly. But that's his argument is he's saying that that version of physicalism is wrong, Yeah, but not right, that right, right. necessarily all versions. So yeah, I agree like you said, that. you'd have to change it completely to where maybe calling it physicalism wouldn't be the right thing to call it at all. Yeah. Maybe it is just, yeah, this weird form of panpsychism. So or... this is okay. This is, so you've thrown out the term monism a couple of times here. Yeah. So how would you explain monism? Cause I could see, I see what I'm seeing is I think this is leading ultimately to like a, so this idea that, as he says, the mental and the physical and the functional might actually be like different aspects of, of that next necessarily follow from some superordinate like larger more fundamental structure right and that is that is that where See, yeah, monism is just that there is one fundamental thing that makes up all of the universe so i like it I and that's it. where like physicalism is a version of that or materialism for example like kind of what we think of as a more canonical physicalism is saying that there is only one substance and it's the physical stuff and yeah. that's again yeah, like yeah. he's saying that that version is wrong yeah. and i think a lot of us in this day and age might agree with that a surprising but, amount of people, I think, would agree with it. Actually. Exactly, yes. It's, and um, I do think, I, I honestly do think most neuros... Like, if we ask the ION people, Institute of Neuroscience, uh, dear listener, at, at our <laughs> university, 
I have a feeling most of them are hard physicalists. That's that's my in, that's my intuition. I don't know. You think so? I do. Okay. I do. I think you'd be surprised. I don't know. Even among the professors, I think there's a lot of yeah maybe rejection of those ideas. But anyway, so monism good, yeah. monism can take other forms though as well, right? And that's why like I would call myself a monist. But I would argue that that one thing isn't what we might call physical. That one thing just is consciousness. However, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm hearing you. I like so this it. paper, I like he kind of makes room for that as a possibility. But arguably, I mean, property dualism, I'm pretty sure, was around well before this paper. Property dualism. But that's kind of what this paper is getting to as well, right? It's also proposing that, hey, property dualism might be the right way of thinking about it. Because Explain we talked, property dualism. Right, we talked briefly about substance dualism earlier in regards to Descartes. And I think in the modern day and age, like, pretty much no philosophers would actually take that position but a lot of philosophers take some sort of property dualist position which is to say that there are um i guess two different kinds of things that make up the universe but okay. these things the one that is separate is this property of experience this this qualia i guess is a canonical example of the property dualist right it's that maybe you can explain everything by our normal physicalist theories except for these certain properties or characteristics of subjective experience mm -hmm. and therefore those are inherently separate or a separate part of the universe's that um, seems like makeup. the same thing as substance i mean i don't want to get bogged down on terms but that seems like the same thing that Descartes was saying, where there, this type of thing is one type of thing and another thing is another type of thing. But Although in I think, Descartes, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Well, Descartes, as I think maybe a distinction is, I think Descartes thought the mental stuff could influence the physical stuff. And here we get to epiphenomenalism, right? Right, yeah. So, and Descartes, explain, or, uh, not Descartes. explain anything with more than three syllables. We <laughs> so what's epi sure. epiphenomenalism? Here, let me try and then okay. you can correct me. It's the idea that consciousness does emerge from the brain in the same sense that the qualitative aspects of like water emerge from h2o um Not quite. Okay. sort of i mean you, you were in the right direction okay, at the beginning yeah, yeah. yeah. so <laughs> yeah like you said so the conscious properties are i guess this mental stuff um or yeah. mental properties whatever you want to call it does emerge from the physical stuff so the basic um, tenet of epiphenomenalism is that the physical stuff can cause mental states yeah. but mental states cannot cause physical states okay right so they're a result of sort of a byproduct of the physical states yeah, yeah, and yeah. nothing more okay um so that's sort of yeah epiphenomenalism and again nagel talking about being non-committal like exactly because they, they he, contribute nothing right the exactly because yeah. some people argue that consciousness itself can actually in turn i mean i've kind of actually already said this but con conscious states itself can influence like you know thoughts and everything could in turn influence like the actual like biochem like when you think when you get angry when you think an angry thought like that itself has the power to change your physiology right right so that would be an argument against epiphenomenalism right, right. and that's I mean, where i actually cards. disagree i all i actually do think it's funny i'm kind of I'm not. I'm. I'm definitely not like what you would call physicalist, but I actually do think everything that happens in conscious experience ultimately is first represented by like the brain. Even this whole feedback loop of oh, I just had a thought which made me angry, which made my heart rate increase. I think all of that is represented physically first. But that that's personally how I feel. But yes, go on. Um, yeah. So I guess first I just like to point out that once again Nagel's non-committal in this paper, and uh, yep. he doesn't. I don't think name it as epiphenomenalism, but he does in one sentence basically say I'm not arguing for epiphenomenalism. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, you know, that's paraphrased, yeah. obviously. Um, and then also talking back again about like property dualism versus substance dualism and the distinction between the two yeah, is right. substance dualism would say that mental states can cause physical states because it is this separate stuff. Right. Okay. So it's like you can have this initial thought that then causes some response yeah. in, or consequence in your okay. body or in the right. physical world. And Descartes was big on that, actually. Descartes right? was, yeah. yeah, one that's of the, like the, that's yeah, what, yeah, the that's what I consider that. dualism to me, just as a general term. Where that's, it's just like yeah. there, there's two actual things that can 
interrelate with each other on yeah. equal grounds. And that's where property dualism gets a little bit more in the weeds because then you have to talk about like, okay, what are these properties then if they're not a separate substance? And some property yeah, dualists see, are epiphenomenalists. So okay. some, people, some people in the property dualism camp would say that, yeah, we do have these mental states or properties that are separate somehow, but they're epiphenomenal. So they can't actually influence this. Not all of them, uh, but there's like okay. different camps so now within it's, that it's, as well. To, that seems like a way of, a, of sidestepping the problem. I, I, I have to think about it. I agree. But you know, if, you, if you're like, no, it's not separate stuff, it's separate properties. And, and like, that's why like, I'm a monist because it just, I don't know, maybe law of parsimony will go with seems, Occam's razor there. The, the monist <laughs> thing almost seems like sidestepping the problem too. I mean, like not in a different way where it's just like, because you would still agree there seems to be some fundamental difference between us talking conscious experience and like activity of cells, right? So as a monist, I would say no, that they're all part of the same thing, but okay. I'm just flipping it on his head instead of rather saying that the mental states arise from the physical states, it's that it's actually the mental states are the only thing. But not in an idealist mental... way. That's where it's different from idealism. But it's a consciousness, I guess, is the only thing. And that what we see as physical is just a result of our interaction with that manifold. Mm, okay. And that's where we get into even the illusion of self. And, you know, I don't think that self is an actual thing. I, I agree, but um, I think for different reasons. But, okay, so you're saying consciousness is the only thing. Yeah. So, so it's turning the whole thing upside down, I guess. Okay, what if, okay, just to figure, like, just to feel this out. I put a, I put a bat brain in front of you. Okay. How do you explain the like the brain? Like that it's just Yeah, I don't know. Like, like what how do you explain like matter in like what we would typically understand as physical thing? Like when you say I think the brain is ultimately just like conscious substance, consciousness substance, something like that. What does that actually mean? How is that different okay. than assuming that physical stuff itself is its own like material like what what are you doing differently there so even when we're talking about matter right if we're talking about like this table yeah. that's one of the things that i mean i think a lot of people would say is pretty wild is that as our physical knowledge our physics has advanced and we've started to parse out what this matter is as the more we break it down the more empty space there is right and we even give come to electrons we can't even define necessarily as particles they're more just waves right yeah this okay to your credit so, to your credit this this type of thing because i've been sort of dismissing the science aspect where i'm saying in principle you know there's no way this type of once you do get into deep theoretical physics territory it does start to look a lot like we are the pre-socratic philosophers before we've made the current you know trying to understand matter and energy exactly it does get really Really, and like you say, like I, I believe all physicists like think that space and time are illusions. Like I, I believe that's like an actually they true. They drop out of the yeah, equation. We yeah, that's what I've heard from like general relativity with quantum mechanics. Yeah, so. exactly. And I'm not. Uh, neither of us can even pretend to understand the math behind that. But if we take no. <laughs> the if we take like all like that is like the consensus is what is what you just said that space and time don't actually exist. And what that means to well, us is so is that they exist as emergent things. I okay. guess they're sort of like abstractions that we've. I've, I've heard it explained in terms of like illusion but illusion, anyway yeah, exactly. the point is yeah. the science the, it, it is important to consider the science because it is so just like crazy and like beyond our conception that, that you could conceivably see there being some, some some explanation of like what you're saying I mean it's what Nagel says right like yeah. we just I'm not he's not saying it's not true but if we if we, it is true it has to be in some expanded way and which we won't know for a long whatever. time yeah. the intellectual distant future although I, think I still yeah, it, right? intellectual distant future I still wonder about that but um, okay we're gonna take a quick intermission real quick uh, I'm gonna make some more coffee too so we'll be right back
what's good everybody we are back two fresh cups of coffee brewed and we are going to resume talking about um monism so this is a completely different <clears throat> approach here like i said i've been reading a lot of myth stuff okay where am i going with this where am i going <laughs> it's like one of the fundamental things across all myth cultures this is why i like kind of like the idea of this this monism thing a good example actually is um i believe i don't know the specifics like but brahmin like the um hindu god it's like the myth there because i just read the upanishads which is like um indian philosophy but also like mythology starts out with like nothing and then and then every, basically they have a conception of the world where everything is just like one right and then a, a classic myth thing is like from one you get two like you get duality right and then and then from the duality it's the combination of those things that introduce all the myriad different forms so it's just i i just say that because it just and i'm i'm there's a whole much of what i've been spending my time doing lately is working on this essay that's related to like myth science and math and point i won't i won't i won't take it there right now this is a separate podcast but there are deep truths about the structure of myth that apply to science and math we don't have to touch that but i do think it's interesting just aesthetically to imagine right because we're talking about okay the physical the mental and the functional whatever they could be ultimately reduced to like some more fundamental thing i do just again aesthetically we could say although i would take it a step further but we could just stick aesthetically i like the idea that it's like you get the physical and the mental are manifestations of some larger unity, some larger like monism. And this monism idea actually is like, it's like in, it's not only just like in mythology and everything, but it's like a major philosophical idea as well too. Like. Yeah. And one thing I'll point out too is that monism does not necessitate reduction. So while a lot of the types mm. of monism that we talk about, like physicalism or materialism, do come from a reductionist standpoint. Well, there are even, I guess, variations of those that are non-reductionist. There's variations on every Monism doesn't have to be reductionism, right? And that's part of, like, the <clears throat> okay. including the subjective is that you're not always reducing it to some objective thing. Like, yeah. I'm trying to think, what is, like, there's something here. What is, like, the actual difference like in terms of like the implications of like there being two things versus just one thing, right? Like what what is it, what is that, like why is that an important distinction to make, if that makes sense? Well, I mean, ultimately it's just because we want to increase our knowledge about how the universe works. Right. But I think the reason that that problem in particular is so interesting to humans is because we do have these rich conscious experiences that don't fit in with our sort of yeah. canonical physical views of the world and therefore it becomes, as we call it, a problem, right? The mind-body problem. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I don't think if we were such conscious creatures that we'd have this problem, so to Yeah, speak. I actually don't think it's a problem. Well, it's not a problem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah my, it's an interesting I'm, question. We'll have but, to talk about yeah. my essay I've talked with you about, like panpsychism and the heart problem consciousness. Uh, yeah, I I don't think it's a problem at all. I think it's a the I think it's an issue of just posing the que- like the question is ill posed exactly but um but I think we do I don't even know if we disagree it's something I'll just have to think about more but you you come about it at a different at a different angle I do it's interesting the the monist idea just implications wise the idea that everything space time all of physics all of consciousness everything in the universe totality of everything can be reduced to like one single I don't substance is even like not the right word, but one single principle or something it gives. Um, I don't know. It reminds like something about that almost seems like religious to me, actually. Like that's like some God shit, right? There is, there is the one that pervades through that pervades and is a manifestation of everything is a manifestation of it. And that's kind of where 
I, I do, because to me, mo, there is a sort of like harmony, wholeness. There is something more godlike about like a unity versus some even just something like a duality. I, I don't know. That's just think, like a, that's just a thought. No, that's one of the things I love about monism is because like it allows for room for all of these other ideas to be true potentially, right? Or maybe mm. not be true in the way that they're presented, but at least to fit into this ontology, right? So right. things like religion, things like there being one god or being one universe, I guess, that everything is a part of, right? And I've and I've kind of thought this for a long time, and I think this applies within religious um, ideas itself, but also just in worldviews. So we all kind of believe in the same thing, we just interpret it in wildly different ways. Right. And the sort of taking this modus view allows for those different interpretations to make sense and to make it un- like so that we can understand different, how different people got of, to these. Different faces of the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. And it makes sense on how people different like got to these different faces. Yeah. And I think that's ultimately too, like when we think about ways of getting at truth, there's usually three main arms that we think about. One of those is science or empiricism. One right. of them is logic or philosophy. And one of them is religion or theology, right? And yeah. it's like, I don't know. I feel like for a long time, humans have had certain intuitions about things and they haven't been able to explain them. So they come up with these stories that might be so wild that like in modern day and age, it might be hard to accept them as truth, but maybe they're just one you know, specific interpretation of this one yeah. thing. No, I, I think, and, and we'll have to, this is a whole separate thing, but yeah, I, I do think there are deep truths about myths. I think the structure of myths and the stories that we come up to explain things we can't understand actually do have complete, like they actually, the structure of those myths can be applied to a, a number of different it's scientific phenomenon. Yeah. yeah. And it is, it is interesting. Like, I'm not even saying like they're good. Me- like, like I'm saying like one of the things I'm working on right now is like, there's like structures of, of myth. For, okay. I guess I'll go there right now. Um, just, just one tiny example. Let's do it. The flood myth, for instance. And now we're like kind of on a whole separate thing, but just uh, this idea of like deeper structures and maybe that all these, like you just said, those three different approaches to knowledge are just all things converging on some similar thing. Exactly. The uh, the flood myth, for instance, is just something that's common across like all different cultures, like independent of geography, time, everybody, all most, a bunch of cultures come up independently with this flood myth. One of my favorite examples actually right now is um, Native American mythology I'm reading. They have, they also have a whole, whole like flood thing, except instead of building like an ark, like in Noah's Ark, they build a giant canoe. That's what it's called, like the giant canoe. And it's the same thing too with all the flood myths is like the world is corrupt in some way and some force, some deity comes in, basically cleanses it, kills off, purges most of it, spares some small population after which that population can grow and expand and, and come renewed right in some in some way so okay right that's an interesting story explaining some something they didn't understand but it's just a story right that's the whole thing the thing that i've been interested in is flood myths actually appear like an actual scientific phenomenon like you can literally replace all the variables in a flood myth with certain things so for instance um are you familiar? Everyone I've asked is not familiar with this, which is amazing. The uh, introduction of deer or wolf wolves into Yellowstone. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll explain it anyway. But it, it's like, so basically, we hunted all the wolves, which that's not the flood myth part. But we hunted all the wolves, which made deer population explode, right? And they're destroying the environment, like they're grazing all the grass. They're making it so new trees can't crop up, and all the animals are leaving because there's no grass to hide in, which makes other animals leave and this, that, and the other. And then the deers themselves are like, their disease is spreading, competition is fierce, right? So, okay, boom. 
that is like the equivalent variable and i have other examples of this i'm just gonna just give this one because this is a whole separate thing but like you can replace so in like the god creation myth or uh flood myth like the people are like just like corrupt and horrible and this is like in greek myth it's native american myth babylonian myth. it's just like everywhere people get like corrupt in some way so god sends the flood the equivalent variable of the flood here is reintroducing wolves into yellowstone which so the flood basically wipes out a huge portion of the population but spares a small amount when the wolves are introduced the deer population is decimated like it gets destroyed obviously some survive but this re-equal this equilibrium is balanced such that yellowstone grows back like completely new right like the grass is growing which brings the mice which brings the rabbits which brings the all these different animals the trees are growing again which uh, like literally affects the architecture of like the soil and everything and then they bring beavers which literally messes with like the actual topography of like the rivers and shit anyway the yellowstone is re re reborn rejuvenated right yeah. it's like and, and that and you can just replace that's like population ecology that's like a scientific phenomenon that you see at different scales all over the place and it's like you could literally just replace those variables like you can treat the the entities and relationships in like and it's not just flood this is just one example this is like what i'm working on right now um anyway deep truths deep structures to me it's like it's it's either like we some kind of deep truth is imprinted on our psyche like we just naturally come up with things because we couldn't have known i mean actually deer population we maybe could have known about although that's even questionable but i the the flood myth thing applies at multiple different scales and, and uh, scales we could not have possibly have known about back then so it's like either like deep truths are imprinted on us or our myths are just another manifestation of like these deeper structures but anyway that was like kind of a, a whole tangent one of the, i'm gonna like kind of i'll kind of bring it back here and it's, it's actually related but um this is like the deep theoretical physics stuff where um i was i was listening to like this interview basically where this guy is talking about uh, edward edward vitton who's like he's dope he's fine okay. he's a physicist <clears throat> who actually like literally got the nobel prize in mathematics like he, he's he's hard uh but he is talking about basically i think it was him string theory is based so okay the classic thing and not, again we're not going to pretend like we're scientists here but like i understand at a high level general relativity and einstein's equations and everything are incompatible with quantum mechanics they they don't they just don't make sense together unless and as i understand it some larger theory like string theory those both are like naturally fall out of some larger principle right there's some higher dimension that it's like again we can't even conceive of that shit but there is another dimension that like through the mathematics of string theory it is like literally it is like an, a complete it's like a logical necessity that both like einstein's relativity is one aspect manifestation of it and quantum mechanics is another aspect manifestation of it which is like well just just to bring it back to like the paper which is what we're talking about where it's like yeah. physical and mental stuff are different manifestations, manifestations of the same aspects yeah. of some larger principle and exactly. it is it is interesting I, and again i don't know if this is just like the human intuition like doesn't necessarily map onto truth or anything right but it is just a very appealing like why would it stop at like three or two like one is like the like that is like what everything must be reduced down to and that's like and one again, is monism occam's razor right yeah law of parsimony it's yeah like i want to explain it explain just um, just in, i'm sure our listeners have heard of it but just just i'm trying to keep it yeah friendly here yeah just among competing hypotheses the simplest is most likely correct yeah, or the exactly. most parsimonious yeah yeah the one and, that makes the fewest assumptions if you will which right. yeah when you're talking about there is one thing versus there 
are multiple things, no matter how many. Of course, there is one thing is a more parsimonious explanation. Yeah, because like a dualism approach would be like you you have to explain not just this one thing, another thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's where I think I pushed back on why you you referred to something I was talking about as idealism earlier, because mm. um, when we're talking about like the physical stuff versus the mental stuff being two manifestations of this larger thing, it's like physical theories try to say no, it's all just the physical stuff. Idealist theories kind of just say like, oh no, it's all just the mental stuff. Right. And I guess yeah. So I think what some people maybe who might call themselves panpsychists would argue is that like neither of those things are the thing although some panpsychists might also fall into like the mental states are the only thing but i think some of them would say that yeah it's just consciousness is that larger thing that they both are manifestations of yeah it's it's interesting i mean it gets it gets hard to even like think about this is this is giving me new because i you know before even just before this little conversation i i was i kind of stopped thinking about it where it's just like okay like I said, consciousness is a fundamental property of the world, like space and time and all the rest that can't be explained in terms of like, you know, just, I forget we're talking about Nagel. Yeah. That that's the whole thing. Right. Um, that's, so I agree with him on that point. I, I just didn't see there being a larger, a larger, I just, I guess I hadn't really thought about there being a larger unifying thing. One thing I, so that's an interesting concept, but that is distinct from what I think what he talks about here with the physicalist objection where it's like if if there is some larger thing that these are both just aspects of it is not physical right and and physicalism as like you know the the conventional understanding of it is everything is physical right they they take like the purely objective view the purely scientific view only only things that have like physical manifestations and, and properties that is only what's true everything above any anything and above over that can cannot be true. That's the idea. Exactly. Yours, you're what you're saying, and what may, even Nagel is like hinting at here is something actually kind of like radically different. Which is there's a whole another thing in it, thing like some other new. Again, I don't know. There's really not kind of once you get this abstract, there's not really even like a word for it. But something um, completely different from both physical things and conscious things. Is that what is that? Well, correct? and mental things. You're, Let's say the mental, mental things. things. Yeah, it's mental things. Because right. maybe you might call that unifying thing consciousness. So, yeah. I think the idea is that, yeah, the physical things and the mental things. Like, there's something more radically different than both of those. Yeah. yeah. Kind of going back to so, your... So, okay, this is tricky, though. I And, I, and again, I don't want to get in the weeds or anything, but what is the difference between mental and conscious? To me, because we were kind of talking about this at Journal Club, um, but mental to me implies, like, a con- consciousness to me. And I don't, yeah, I don't want this to be like a discussion, just like language game here, but it is. It's, In this it's, case, okay. though, it kind of comes down to that, right? It's, it's yeah, two right. different definitions of what we're calling consciousness. And there's right. definitely different definitions of consciousness. And that's why you might have things like integrated information theory that claim to know how to quantify consciousness. Dude, okay. But that's a whole different kind I of actually, consciousness than yeah, what Nagel's uh, talking about. And that's a different kind of consciousness than what a panpsychist might talk about. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, It's funny that you mentioned information theory. Uh, okay, I'm just gonna lay all my all my th- these these are a lot of things I've been thinking about and that I'm writing about right now. I actually do like the at first I thought the information processing theory of consciousness didn't make sense. I actually so okay, just we'll start from square one. I was thinking about ants, ant colonies, right? And and I have this book called Superorganism, and it's crazy. I opened it and it's like literally describing basically the same things that brains do just a different structure, different hierarchy. Like, okay, ants communicate through chemical transmission, which is exactly what neurons do, right? Like they- Just to be clear, we're talking about the entire colony yeah. being the brain. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, not yeah. an individual. Exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. Which is interesting. And yeah. I, 
something to think about. But okay, so it's like, okay, the brain we know gives rise to consciousness. The brain is basically just a huge complex network of information exchange. Information, you know, and this is why I need to, I'm doing a lot of research right now. I don't know what information really is. I, I know that it's a reduction in uncertainty and right, like like the technical definitions, what it actually is. Anyway, I do know that ant communication is a form of information processing where they use rather than neurotransmitters, pheromones, which is just a different hydrocarbon configuration than neurotransmitters is a hydrocarbon configuration. Same fucking thing, right? And then it's like, okay, so no, I don't think we would say there's something specific about the neurotransmitters we use. Like, that's not like that's the secret. It has to be these. That's what gives rise to consciousness. So it's like, I can't see why pheromones and neurotransmitters are not analogous things. Ant colonies are obviously organized differently than brains, sure. But if it's a question, it, at that point, it's like a question of degree. Like, you know, you could imagine an ant colony structured similarly to a brain. And it's like, why would consciousness not arise in, in that case? Like, it, it again, it gets crazy. But I honestly, I do wonder. It's like, I wonder if consciousness actually just emerges as like infor, information processing. If this, if, like, does that like make sense? Like, what, if, if an ant colony is conscious in the same way that like a brain could be. And I'm not, and I'm not saying it is, and you would, and like the architecture of like an ant colony is way, way, way different than a brain, but you could imagine some similar analogous structure. And it's like, I personally can't see why consciousness in some form, again, it's, it's alien, right? Like, it's like what he's saying. Like we can never know what it's like. It'd be like literally like an, a, like an, a, you, you don't know what it would be like, but I would have to think it emerges or what, how, again, we got to be careful with the language, but something like that. And then I do wonder if, if like consciousness ultimately boils down to some configuration of, of information processing, whatever that actually is. But anyway, I'm just throwing that out there. Sounds like you kind of like information or integrated information theory then. I, yeah, because at first I thought it was like stupid. When I first heard about it, I'm like, this is, I originally thought, whatever, integrated information theory was just another scientific explanation of like, just because, because what, okay, so one of the criticisms actually that, uh, that Nagel got was so it was from Kathleen Atkins who argued that many questions about a bat's subjective experience hinge on unanswered questions about the neuroscientific details of a bat's brain such as the function of cortical activity profiles and Nagel is too quick in ruling these out as answers to essential questions that to me is is, is nonsense it like she she is basically saying that it comes down to you're not considering all the neuroscientific details, he, she's right? She's missing the point, though. That's ex yeah. all. I believe all. We'll go through the list of criticisms. Okay. Here. I believe they're all missing the point. Okay. Uh, like, like literally, like they're doing the same things that he's he's like arguing against. But you know, the idea that she says, such as the functional function of cortical activity profiles, has nothing to do with it, right? Like, the, the, this is the whole point. You can know everything that's happening in the brain. It tells you. It tells you nothing about what actually, like, you know, the conscious states are. So anyway, I thought the inter integrated information theory was just another scientific explanation of, of it. And honestly, even then, why would information exchange lead to consciousness? Like why, what, like it's, it almost actually is the same thing. It's like, how do you get from point A to point B? Like it's still actually the same problem now that I think about it. But again, it is, it does come down to in a way the definition of consciousness that we're talking about yeah. because I feel like the kind of consciousness that integrated information theory is getting at is not the same kind of consciousness that Nagel's talking about. And because I think that's his idea, right? Is like, it, you know, integrated information theory is trying to get it 
how to figure out if a system has consciousness or reaches a certain threshold, right? Oh, it's a, it's okay. a quantification of that information oh, exchange. interesting. And then it can basically look at a system, take different input from that system and determine, okay, is this system Come up with like a conscious metric or, or Yeah, oh, exactly. That's, that's a, funny. Yeah, and then it's like, okay, and then okay, what I threshold don't, do we I use? don't agree. See, this is, this is where my pantsigism thing comes. I actually right. think consciousness is just uniformly present and there's things you can be conscious of. Yeah. Right? Like, for instance, uh, the like a classic argument against panpsychism is like, oh, rocks are conscious. Then it's like, it's like no. But see, this is where I think it's a matter of wording, right? Yeah, because okay. it's not that rocks are conscious; it's that rocks are consciousness. Mm. It's that the very fabric of what a rock is is actually part of the same conscious consciousness fabric, which is now this is a different type of consciousness than even what Nagel's talking about, right? Okay, yeah. And that's where yeah, the definitions is, matter, and that's this why is where I say the definitions that matter, yeah. right. So, like when you're talking about the qualia or the subjective character experience or the kind of consciousness that Nagel's talking about, you might. Think and kind of associate with that with those mental states that we were talking about. Yeah, yeah, and we're yeah. talking about the mental and physical states being two manifestations of yeah, this right, yeah, yeah, of yeah. the thing. This is what I was going to. And ask that's you where actually. the definition comes in because, like, what I would argue, what I'm calling consciousness from a monist perspective, or maybe a panpsychism, certain kind of panpsychism. We'll pers- yeah, we'll st- a monist perspective. If this consciousness is that one thing, now you're not associating that consciousness with the conscious experience anymore okay but rather that it is, is an the, important decision yeah, yeah it is yeah, a yeah, very yeah. Okay. higher order thing that that conscious experience and the physical things that we see around us or yeah. interact with kind of okay okay yeah, yeah. I, I like that that makes that makes sense to me so you're you're what well, the monist idea is 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 not like what it's like to be an organism it's, correct it's something it's okay different, yeah. so that yeah yeah the definitions we need it you need to come up with a term you, yeah you get a you get a, a coin a new term <laughs> Uh, the Ben substance. I think some people have just called it God. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, honestly, Loki. Uh, <laughs> or the universe, or yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wanna, I mean, yeah. it's it's true, it's true. And then especially too, you know, like matter is energy, and that whole it really does it. The if if physics continues in the way it has, it really is just boiling down to to some like single higher. It order seems thing, like yeah, yeah fu- fundamental fundamental thing which is yeah I, I like the idea i have to i'll have to think more about this but and and the implications but it is it is appealing to me and it, it makes sense and it's it's i guess the question the question is almost like i guess it's hard to imagine what the this superordinate we need to come up with a word for it the your your monist subs whatever your your monism your god stuff i mean that's- like what is it? I mean, I it almost think I almost think it's beyond conception. And that's part of Nagel's argument in this paper, right? right is that right, right, right. he does a hint to that? Okay, there might be this sort of thing, this higher order thing that can explain all of the subjective and the objective. But his point is just that we don't know what that would look like. Yeah, it's that maybe even we can't know what that would look like. Can't. Yeah. And maybe yeah. this oh, is a good time. Ta- yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe okay. Is, before, yeah, because yeah, okay. we were just talk- bef- real quick, but put yeah. a pin in that because I want to say I, I'm coming back to my myth thing now. So okay. like. In the Upanishads, it, it's just funny, right? Because it's like the, like in the beginning, there's like I, I forget they have different names for it, but um, it's basically it's described as like literally transcendent, featureless, attributeless, immutable. Like it is, it is almost in a sense like nothing, but it's actually like everything. Like the point is the substance that they're talking about that from which the universe was created is it is beyond human conception like it you it, you just it's like capital t transcendent has no aspects to it at all and it, it that does kind of fit nicely with what you're saying kind of where it's it's something that might exist that we can't actually we can't actually know or that's the thing where I, it's like it's not a matter of intellectual horizons to me it's like that that's just beyond but but it is it is uh i like the idea it fits nicely but yes Go well because we were talking about Nagel does kind of touch on this, so 
Yeah, and um, I don't know. I was going to say maybe this is a good time to go back to the, the point he made about, you know, I guess being able to take on the experience of someone else, of another person, mm. and whether that's even possible, right? So it's like, where does the epistemic boundary lie? And he specifically goes, again, with his non-committalness, and he talks yeah. directly about how he's not trying to raise the epistemic problem or the epistemological problem, but I think that's an important problem to raise, and I think that's kind of what you're just hinting at. That's part of why... Um, it is so like, you know, because it's transcendent, because it's beyond our yeah, capability, yeah, it's something yeah. that we can't ever know, not just that we will never know, but yeah. it's that we can't ever actually understand it and because here, think of it this way too. So imagine, okay, if we're talking about some sort of monism, you can call it whatever you want. Um, what's a good example? Let's take, for example, the, you know, a carpet, right? Yeah. Like if the carpet is the only thing that is like everything <laughs> in the universe is just that carpet. Okay. It's like, could one possible like if one little tiny piece of a thread on that carpet could that carpet or that could that piece of thread ever know the carpet as a whole right, could ever right. actually know what the carpet yeah, is yeah. yeah can one instance of this larger substance ever know the entire substance itself exactly yeah yeah no it's it's a and, and related to that so one of the things he talks about is um he talks about the idea that there are facts which could not ever be represented or comprehended by us even though they are actually true so he's, exactly. he's, he says, and it's kind of at a different level here, but I think the same thing applies. So he says, my realism about the subjective domain in all forms implies a belief in the existence of facts beyond the reach of human concepts. He's talking about in actually like subjective facts. Like it is, there is some facts about what it's like to be a bat. We just couldn't know that. But I think the general principle will apply. So he says, after all, there would have been, there would have been transfinite numbers, even if everyone had been wiped out by the Black Plague the Black Death before Cantor discovered them. But one might also believe that there are facts which could not ever be represented or comprehended by human beings, even if the species lasted forever. That I think might be getting at what's your, this, this monism idea. It's exactly. like, yeah. you can't describe it really in a way. It's like capital T transcendent, but you could like, he, he has a couple points about this actually, where it's like, you can have, cause he even talks about consciousness is funny. Cause it's like, we actually can have proof of a fact that we have no idea how it's true. Cause like, he, and he, and then he, he gives, gives an example, example. for that too, the butterfly. Yeah, yeah. Explain it. Um, yeah. So it's just that you take a caterpillar and you close it in a box, right? And then you open the box. And with someone later. who has no conception of metamorphosis. Exactly. Or, yeah. So it's like you can, so the, yeah, the, the caterpillar can change into yeah, a... Yeah, I can read it if you'd like. Yeah, yeah, do it. So suppose a caterpillar is locked in a sterile safe by someone unfamiliar with insect metamorphosis, and weeks later the safe is reopened, revealing a butterfly. If the person knows that the safe has been shut the whole time, he has reason to believe that the butterfly is or was once a caterpillar without having any idea in what sense this might be so. Yeah, yeah. so we have proof for facts that we could not explain, right? Yeah. And then convert, so that's just kind of related to this idea that we can also know the existence of facts that we could never know. Like we know that there must be facts that we could not know, which is interesting. Just like the idea that we could even again, understand that at a level, like yeah. know of something again. Yeah. That we, that we could not know. And that is very much the flavor of what you're talking about with, with, with the monism stuff, yeah. which, which I, I, I like it's um, it's, it's an interesting idea. And again, it, it is <clears throat> just to, just to pitch, it is very much common throughout like, um, myths this this idea just me coming back to yeah. the truth of myths but um, yeah that's why his like you know central thought experiment is so perfect because you know talking yeah, about it what is. it's like to be a bat it's like that is something that we can with you know a fair degree of certainty say that there is something it is like to be a bat without ever being able to know what that something yeah, is yeah it's it's yeah. almost in this it's almost kind of like the same transcend capital t transcend like we really could never yeah. never know even in any capacity it's almost like a similar thing yeah 
<clears throat> okay, well, I think uh, it'd be fun just to go through some of the criticisms. I already mentioned sure, one, yeah. and then we can just wrap it up. So, cool. Dan Dennett, our good friend Dan Dennett, <laughs> denies Nagel's claim that the bat's consciousness is inaccessible, contending that any interesting or theoretically important features of a bat's consciousness would be amenable to third-person observation. So he is saying, actually, he's denying... Nagel's claim that we actually he's saying we could actually access what it's like to be a bat that's that's as I understand it that's his thing he says for instance it is clear that bats cannot detect objects more than a few meters away because echolocation has a limited range so it's like okay that's something we can learn about like we know that bats can't perceive something like whatever x amount of meters away because of the of the physical attributes of echolocation so that's something we've learned objectively about the conscious experience of bats that didn't that is done uh, through this like again physicalist scientific uh perspective and then he holds that any similar aspects of its experiences could be gleaned by further scientific experiments that's that's the the thing again it's the same point of what the kathleen atkins thing kind yeah, of it's missing it's like, the point <laughs> it's, it's missing the point and the uh, he does have this interesting objection i guess of like we could know the limits of bats perceptual sphere through objective uh yeah and i don't deny him that claim but that still doesn't tell us anything i also about kind what of do deny like him to... the claim because well, no. the one reason you would know that is through behavior how would you know what whether a bat could perceive some particular well you can no you can measure yeah, the, that's true, that's the true. frequencies of the shrieks and yeah, yeah and so and, no, and see like the the degree to which the sound waves travel and everything yeah no that's that's fair Yes, but, but that still doesn't tell us anything about yeah. what it's actually like to be that bad. Exactly. You know? and yeah. that's, the, yeah. It's almost just like like a blind person can't see. I've learned something about what it's like to be blind. Well, actually, that is kind of an interesting argument. But but it's like the idea is it doesn't actually tell me what it's like to be the blind person yeah. in any capacity. And the idea that these things would be revealed through more experimentation. Like that that's what I mean, you can even just take his example earlier. Imagine a bat, an intelligent bat or alien civilization was trying to understand what it's like to be a human. Like it, the idea that they'd be able to get at what it's like like this quality of experience we're feeling right now through like experiments is, is again it's just they're completely different levels of explanation you're trying to explain one thing in terms of something completely different that doesn't apply yeah and i know that nagel didn't want to take it this far but i would honestly take nagel's argument a step further and say that it's you know i think we touched on this a little bit earlier but that it's impossible for me to even know what it's like for you to have the experience you know yeah. we could be looking at the same thing we could be in the same point in time and space well you know not i guess exactly but you know what space I mean? and time don't exist but, uh, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but yeah I and mean, we can't actually occupy the same space at that the same time well, yeah. but yeah <laughs> but say that we are having no With essentially scientific experimentation bro but yeah <laughs> but we could have the same experience from an objective standpoint right. but what it's like yes. for you to have that experience is still different and inaccessible to what yeah. it's like for me to have the experience yeah the interesting you know? question there is is it a matter of degree or is it simply like can i not understand what it's like to be you to the same degree I cannot understand what it's like to be a bat or is it I cannot understand what it's like to be you because he he at some point he does in fact it's almost like a call to action at the end of the thing he says like we could come up with some kind of objective perceptual framework to like better like uh, we can never know what it's like to be a blind person but there's some wiggle room there that seems to be like what he was ex uh arguing for at the end like it's it's yeah. a, it's a degree of like interrelatedness it's a degree of accuracy that you're willing to to settle on you know and i think yeah. that's something that especially in the modern day that scientists have to even acknowledge as they enter whatever field they want to study it's that science itself is imperfect right it's like yeah. we're getting at something that's closer to the objective truth actually it's yeah so i think it's all approximation i think i actually have this highlighted somewhere too let me find it beauty of editing list. 
Yeah, so I think, you know, even talking about science, he talks about, in speaking of the move from subjective to objective characterization, um, he wishes to remain noncommittal about the existence of an endpoint, <laughs> the completely objective intrinsic nature of the yeah. thing, um, which one might or may not be able to reach. But really, he said it's more accurate to think of objectivity as a direction in which the understanding can travel, right? Yeah. So even here, again, being noncommittal about the existence of an objective reality, but even here he's pointing out that science itself is still not perfectly objective, yeah. right? It's moving in a direction, in a direction. of objectivity. Yeah. So that's, I think, where he's getting at, too, with what you're talking about is, like, we might be able to move in a direction of understanding this better. And, there, you know, the closer that degree of similarity between Observer A, maybe that's you, and Observer B, maybe that's me, mm -hmm. might be closer than that of Observer A, right. which is you, and Observer C, which might be the bat, right? Yeah, yeah. But either way, it's moving in that direction. It's yeah. never actually obtaining the objective nature or even the actual nature of the subjective experience. It right, still yeah. applies there, I guess, is my point, right? Mm -hmm. So I like that. I forget about that because uh, that's a footnote too, right? No, this oh, this okay, part okay. is in the main, yeah. But he does have he does, he have, does have a footnote, but, yeah, related to it. Though. But um, yeah. the I like this idea because he, he says like, what the, is there some final destination of objectivity? That's, he, it's like, that's kind of modesty, right? Like you, like what is the, the objective, object, like the final degree, like the ultimate destination of what science is going towards yeah when we try and understand the physical nature of just matter and like these fundamental principles and that's sort of the first question of metaphysics right is first of all mm. is there an objective reality right yeah 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 is so, there or is it just you know turtles yeah. all the way down turtles all the way down yeah <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll pin that one we'll pin that one for for next time um okay just to keep going through some of these peter hacker interprets nagel's statement as not only malconstructed but philosophically misconceived as a definition of consciousness and he asserts that nagel's paper laid the groundwork for 40 years of fresh confusion about consciousness i mean i just disagree i i, I think i've i for there's a reason it's the most cited and influential besides it just being like a famous paper like it, it really does clarify certain questions about like consciousness and again i i think the part of what's smart i mean it's his whole argument but this distinction between subject and objective the idea that you could ob objectively understand the subjective is like literally again he says how like going from an objective understanding to the subjective understanding of the bat takes you further away from understanding the bat, not not closer to it. Um, and again, just even the basic definition, because at least I, maybe it's been said before. I'd never really seen it. Just put that simply, you know, what is it like to be an organism? What is it like to be a bat? Yeah. And him giving the the example is great because it's just completely out of understanding but yet like it proves like we would like we said he says i believe we all assume bats have consciousness and it's like okay yes yeah so eric switch gable and michael s gordon have argued that contrary to nagel normal sighted humans do use echolocation much like bats it is just that it is generally done without one's awareness they use this to argue that normal people in normal circumstances can be grossly and systematically mistaken about their conscious experience that's a nev next level of missing the point. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Saying humans can use echolocation. Like, it is true that, like, humans, like, when we, we do use some kind of sound localization, like, the like there's brain mechanisms that calculate, like, the time difference between, like, when... That's away. different from sending out high-frequency shrieks, Yeah, though. exactly, <laughs> like, yeah. And being able to determine, like, texture and s size. And, and also, yeah. it just misses the point completely because you could imagine something... Like, I don't know, for, like an octopus, right? Like the, just some, the point is there's perceptual systems completely out of our understanding yeah, and that they can still be conscious and we don't know what it's like to be that. Like the idea that humans might use like some degree of echolocation and that it's like we, we are mistaken about our own conscious experience is just 
I don't even know what to do with that. Yeah, it's <laughs> arguing as like a side point that's not even central to the argument. It's yeah, like, okay, exactly. like who, who really cares? Like, yeah. first of all, yeah, exactly. Like, it doesn't help us understand this problem yeah. of, you know, putting so, ourselves in the subjective experience of someone else or yeah, something else. Exactly. And so I will, so just, and just as a final point, so this I read elsewhere about, um, and it, it's related to what we've been saying, but about Nagel's developing views on this is he says his skepticism is about current physics. He envisages in his most recent work that people may be close to a scientific breakthrough in identifying an underlying essence that is neither physical uh, nor functional nor mental, but such that it necessitates all three of these in ways which the mind appears to us. So, okay, he had us in the first half. It sounded like it was a scientific thing, but he's actually saying that like, there's some he's something that's neither physical neither functional neither mental that's basically actually what you were saying about this the idea of there's something some larger thing from which these all fall out of yeah right i'm definitely curious to hear about um your report on his article on um panpsychism which he wrote after this because yeah yeah, again like that's kind of where we started with that conversation is he leaves that door open for that to be the case for sure but in this article what it's like to be a bat he doesn't quite dive into it but yeah it sounds like in his later career he might further dive into the possibilities of what that thing is that is not mental is not physical is not functional and yet sort of you know gives way to all three it gets a little spooky it gets a little it gets into religion territory and honestly if you go deep enough at all i mean religion is low-key just like something we use to explain that transcendent thing. Exactly. And you can get at it through science, you can get at it through like myth and just normal, the mystery of the world, but it all comes down to that, that capital T transcendence. Yeah. Okay, well, any, any final thoughts on the paper? Any last words? I think we've... I think we've done a pretty we've good solved job. Consciousness. Yeah, we haven't. We, done, we've not even come close to that. No, no, no. <laughs> we solved it. No, no. We set out. We set out in the beginning to to figure it out, and now it's been proven. Yeah. So, and you you'll have to think about what uh, term to coin for for, <laughs> for that one. I like thing. Ben stuff. Ben stuff. Ben stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, okay, yeah. I all my final thoughts are just I think it's a very well written paper, especially in terms of like as far as academic philosophy goes. And I encourage everyone to read it. And um, lots of interesting talking points to go to go from here. It, Definitely. He, he, he remains. He opens the door for us. He remains noncommittal. He doesn't walk through, but he opens it for us. So, exactly. And there's yeah. lots of things, I think, to, to discuss going forward. But um, Ben, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks Listener, for having me. <laughs> smash that fucking five star because you know it was five star conversation. Get to my YouTube. Follow me on Instagram. All of that. And thank you for listening to Big Nate Short Story Club, home of the best short story clubs.